This podcast is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To view faculty disclosures or to learn how to claim CME credit, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org backslash university. This educational series is supported by independent educational grants from Estellas, AstraZeneca, Lantheus Medical Imaging, Merck, and Pfizer Incorporated. Good morning, my name is Jay Rahman and I'm Professor of Urology at Penn State Health and Chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to host another of our Office of Education podcasts, and this episode falls into our Expert Exchange series titled Discussions in Genitourinary Cancers. Today's show titles specifically The Evolving Landscape of Androgen Deprivation Therapy in Advanced Prostate Cancer. And it's really my pleasure to host Dr. Chris Filson. Uh, Dr. Filson is Associate Professor of Urology at the Emory School of Medicine, and he's a member of the Winship Cancer Institute. Uh, his focus is really caring for men and women with advanced, uh, well, urologic malignancies, both, both localized and advanced, but particularly prostate cancer care. And his academic interests are really to optimize uh, prostate cancer detection and treatment in the United States, as well as improving access to uh, underserved populations and improving cost effectiveness of treatments. Um, so Chris, uh, first and foremost, uh, thank you so much for joining. It's really my pleasure to have you here. Thanks, James. I'm really excited to talk about this important topic. So um, I'm gonna go into some learning objectives, but but I wanna kick off and, and ask you a really important question, which is, I, I certainly know that uh, from Twitter that you're a very avid San Francisco Giants fan. <laughs> And uh, and the Braves are in the World Series, so I just wanted to, to. Are you are you rooting for the Braves or or the Astros here? Well, I definitely, with my Atlanta ties now, have to support the local team. But I will say, as a Giants fan, it would be nice to see our former coach Dusty Baker get a World Championship as well. So I'm a little torn, but I think uh, just based on geography, I think the tie goes to the Atlanta Braves. So I'll be rooting for them for in the. Uh, World Series this year. Probably wouldn't reflect well if you had an Astros jersey on and walked yeah. around the streets, right? Yeah, that would reflect pretty poorly upon me. Um, so so uh, the learning objectives uh, for this program are um, first to talk about some of the risks and benefits uh, for uh, the different types of uh, advanced prostate cancer, M1 hormone sensitive, M0 castrate resistant, and M1 castrate resistant talk about some of the significance of GnRH agonists versus antagonists and some of the newer treatment uh, complementary options, and then uh, discussions with patients and caregivers regarding these different treatment options and, and how we balance them. So, so Chris, you know, we, we, we talk about advanced prostate cancer, but, but I, I think, um, as you would acknowledge, we probably just need to start with the very basics of and get everyone up to speed on, on where we are. So maybe some of the basics on how we need to think about uh, systemic therapy for, for, you know, advanced prostate cancer. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's very much a changing landscape. That's what we're talking about today. But oftentimes, you know, one can get enthralled with these new novel medications that can treat very selected populations. 
uh, and, and kind of forget about the importance of androgen deprivation therapy in general um, for, for what we've used for decades is still an important component of, of what we offer men for their treatment for their uh, more advanced uh, uh, prostate cancer, specifically uh, castration with, with androgen deprivation therapy in, in combination with some of the newer uh, medications that we're going to talk about. And when we talk about um, castration, you know, it, it's important to acknowledge that this can be um, uh, administered or at least um, given in different ways, medically through injections oftentimes and, and sometimes with oral medications, as we'll talk about, um, uh, versus surgical castration, which uh, with, it, with a, uh, a simple orchiectomy can offer a, a similar level of castration. It's been proven to show effective and can be have some benefits over the, the frequent injections that patients may need otherwise. So when you have folks that you are, you're, you're, you're starting on androgen deprivation therapy, let's just, whether it's medical or surgical, what are some of the, the things that, well, you think about as you give it and, and you counsel patients on with regards to maybe what they should, they should be doing? Yeah. So, so in general, this is a patient population that's older, can be frail, and can have other comorbidities that may be pertinent uh, to acknowledge when we're talking about uh, starting androgen deprivation therapy. Um, so when, when you're assessing the relative risks and benefits of starting such a therapy, it's really important to kind of see what a patient's living situation is, their um, you know activities of daily living and their functional status as to know what the potential impact of starting this therapy would be on an individual as well as their caregivers that may be taking care of them. Um, and then furthermore, you have to uh, remember in terms of the importance of acknowledging that androgen deprivation therapy can have a detrimental impact on bone strength and put patients at risk for fractures. So getting DEXA bone scans is going to be key. And then finally, you know, it, we, we generally do a pretty good job about this, but understanding a patient's uh, family history of other malignancies and other advanced malignancies um, is important to assess, as well as in the setting, getting a baseline assessment of their germline and tumor genomics, which may have important uh, uh, impact on what therapies may be available to them down the line. So a cornerstone of a lot of... Um treatment has always been these GnRH agonists. Um, can you maybe just sort of talk a little bit about, obviously now what we're seeing, you know, the GnRH antagonists, some of which are, are intramuscular, now more recently, some of that are oral, you know, maybe just at a high level, um, is there a significant difference? Uh, do we need to think about them differently? Uh, how do you sort of look at these antagonists versus the agonists in this algorithm? Yeah, and it's it's very exciting that we have these uh, options that are coming to the table either recently in the past or, or moving forward in terms of FDA approval for um, antagonists, which have certain differences in terms of how they work in terms of blocking the production of testosterone rather than kind of overwhelming the system in the body to initially create a flare of testosterone that subs subsides uh, over time. Um, these newer antagonists, the, the hope is that there may be some better side effect profiles for patients in that potentially they will have less detrimental impact on one's cardiovascular health. Um, I think in terms of um, one of the more um, uh, established one, uh, Degarelix, um, in terms of the, 
the initial investigations into that, it's unclear whether that's really borne out in the data quite yet. The newest one on the block is Relugalix, um, which is an oral therapy, essentially um, kind of taking away the burden of a patient having to come in every three months for an injection where they can have a pill that they take at home and, and potentially um, accelerate the, the, level, the time until a castration, castrate state for a patient. So there, there may be some advantages for that. Um, however, we, we have to be careful of jumping in and starting to give that to everybody because a lot of the uh, existing trials looking at combinations with some of the newer agents with androgen deprivation therapy haven't looked at uh, the potential detrimental side effects associated with combining those. And so, so I think it's exciting and I think it's, it's important that there may be some patient populations for that, that really will benefit from these, but I'm not sure if quite yet it's, it's ready for prime time for everybody in this situation with advanced prostate cancer. Got it. So, um, you know, maybe what we could do is, is talk about a few different patient scenarios theoretically that, that we see in practice. And, and, and the first is you know, what I would call the, the M1 uh, hormone sensitive prostate cancer. And, and maybe let's just start off just for our listeners, just so you know, we're going to have sort of a whole spectrum of, of you know, students all the way through. What, maybe just tell us, what is M1 hormone-sensitive prostate cancer? Then maybe we'll talk about, about you know, the, the treatment paradigm for that. Yeah, great. So, yeah, it's important to kind of get a context of what we're talking about here. And when we talk about M1 or metastatic or, uh, hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, these are patients who present with evidence of metastasis, and that can be either M1A, where there's lymph nodes involved outside of the pelvis, so other areas that aren't surrounding the prostate, um, or um, more advanced metastatic disease that's in, in involving bone, or in some cases, organs in the body, like the lung or liver, where, where that's kind of a next level in terms of um, uh, staging. Um, and, and when we talk about hormone sensitive or other you know, treatment naive, these are patients that present in that state, so they haven't progressed um, while on, you know, systemic therapy for, for um, you know, either PSA recurrence after treatment or otherwise. So they're, they're, they're essentially having been exposed to any of the potential treatments that are available to them. So, so now that we have this patient population and, and we talked in the, in the previous few minutes about um, androgen deprivation, um, tell us, how does this, you know, the old mantra used to be, you know, these patients received monotherapy. Um, is that the case or, or is that really a thing of the past? And, and what has the evolution been in this realm for M1 hormone sensitive prostate cancer? Yeah. I mean, based off of a number of clinical trials examining various agents um, combined with androgen deprivation at the time of diagnosis, really for patients who present with metastatic prostate cancer, treatment with ADT monotherapy should not be really considered at this point, um, except for potentially rare cases where a patient had you know, some sort of contraindication to everything else on the, on the table. In general, um, for your standard patient presenting with metastatic disease that hasn't been treated, just treating them with ADT alone should not be considered. And, and there's now we have four options in the, combined with ADT that really uh, have good, strong level one evidence supporting their use. So, so when we, we look at this, um, Maybe just for our listeners, what are sort of the, the the big four that you're you're sort of talking about? And, and um, granted, I mean we're we're not medical oncologists, but but what are some of the factors that play into maybe 
using one versus another versus another? Yeah. Um, so the four four options that essentially have been supported by strong uh, randomized clinical trial evidence uh, in terms of their advantage over uh, androgen deprivation alone are abiraterone, apalutamide, docetaxel, and enzalutamide. And that's in no particular order. Um, because ultimately, we haven't really had any, you know, significant evidence of any of these being better than the others head to head. So you kind of have to look at um, the, the kind of nuances in terms of how they're administered and the potential kind of side effects associated with them, as well as, um, you know, some other factors such as a patient's um, insurance coverage and financial situation, which does, for better or worse, come into play when we're talking about these therapies. For instance, for abiraterone, it has to be administered with prednisone or some type of steroid based on its mechanism of action. So there are some patients that have other comorbidities, be it diabetes or other things that may not be as well controlled if they're also on a steroid. So that may be a reason that you would want to shy away from using abiraterone in a particular patient. On the flip side, patient may have um, maybe good insurance coverage for, for infusions of, say, chemotherapy, but maybe they're their coverage for uh, pharmaceutical oral therapy is not as robust, particularly for these kind of relatively expensive medications. In that case, potentially docetaxel, which is a very cost-effective option for patients, may be a better option for that patient, given its relatively uh, significant equipoise in terms of how well it performs uh, for the, this patient population. So, so it's sort of two questions in this space. The first for you is, so docetaxel has a different mechanism of action than, than some of these androgen uh, or anti-androgen-based um, uh, therapies. Uh, is there any data now on combining these in the M0 space, you know, combining docetaxel with one of these and, and, and improving theoretically uh, maybe survival benefit or, or tumor response? Yeah, just, just in recent months uh, at, at both at, I think, ASCO and ESMO, the two kind of recent, recent clinical uh, uh, congresses that, that present uh, up and coming data showed results from the PEACE-1 trial, which was held in Europe, suggesting there may be a, a benefit in terms of at least progression-free survival at this point by combining both androgen deprivation plus abiraterone plus docetaxel for patients presenting with metastatic disease. So we may see in the coming years escalation of kind of upfront therapy, like bringing the howitzer to the to the battlefront to, to really like uh, attack uh, the cancer, um, you know, upfront in that, in that aggressive way so, and, and potentially giving longer uh, progression-free survival in that setting. And so then the second question is, um, okay, in these patients who come in who have M1 hormone sensitive prostate cancer, what do we do with the prostate? I mean, do, do we treat it? Um, and, and what sort of the data um, there and I, it's, it, I'm sure it's a much more nuanced answer than, than what I'm throwing your way. But, but how do we think about treatment of the primary tumor in this setting? Yeah, it probably also depends on who you ask sometimes too, because <laughs> I think it's still a, uh, you know, not super contentious. But if you ask urologists versus radiation oncologists versus medical oncologists, they may have different views. But data from a, from a, another large scale uh, clinical trial called Stampede suggested that. There may be a, a small but real survival benefit for men who present with metastatic prostate cancer that's been untreated to radiating the prostate, treating the primary source of, of this um, cancer that has spread 
Um, and it may offer, uh, on the order of four months, uh, some improved overall survival. Um, and it was, a, it was a strong, well-designed study. Um, now, there's um, some debate over whether we can take one well-designed study with a modest uh, impact to, to mean that, you know, it's set in stone that all these patients should go on to get radiation therapy of their prostate. I think there's still some unanswered questions as to the role of surgery in that setting. And fortunately, we have an ongoing clinical trial, uh, SWOG-1802, here in the United States that's, that's offering randomization to patients um, with this uh, M1 treatment naive or hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, the opportunity to undergo uh, treatment of their um, primary disease with either prostatectomy or radiation therapy. And I think we're eagerly awaiting uh, results from that trial to help inform whether there is going to be a role for primary treatment in that setting. So we spent some time now talking about uh, those that are hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. So let's pivot now and talk a little bit about M1 castrate-resistant prostate cancer. And maybe just for, for our audience, just like we did for the, the last sort of you know scenario, um, what is M1 castrate-resistant prostate cancer? What does that mean? Yeah, so so as opposed to someone who shows up with, with a disease that may have spread to the bones but had not received treatment before, this is a scenario where a patient has been on systematic therapy, um, uh, sorry, systemic therapy uh, to essentially treat their um, disease, be it a PSA recurrence or, or evidence of prior metastases, where the testosterone levels are below a certain threshold, generally 50, um, deeming them castrate, but there is evidence of progression. That can be the PSA rising a certain number of times above a certain level or evidence of, on x-rays, PET scans, or otherwise of radiographic evidence of progression. But either one of those situations where there's progression and the testosterone levels are castrate means that it's metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. So let's, let's take this, this scenario of, of metastatic uh, castrate-resistant prostate cancer. And, and how do you think about the treatment uh, algorithm for, for these patients? Is it based on certain factors? Uh, and what do you look at in this setting? Yeah, so th there's three important things to, to assess kind of if this scenario emerges. One is, is determination of um, if there's a new metastatic site to biopsy that and rule out the presence of what's called small cell or neuroendocrine differentiation, which will completely change the paradigm of how you treat that patient. The second is to understand what treatments they, the, the individual patient has been uh, exposed to in the past. And then third, as I highlighted kind of earlier, it's important to assess the presence of any specific tumor mutations or germline mutations that a patient may have to help guide potential uh, options for very novel, very unique therapies directed at specific mutations in a given tumor. So those are the three things that really have to be assessed up front. All right. So, uh, Chris, you, you mentioned, okay, so those that get um, that have small cell or neuroendocrine, we, we pivot towards chemotherapy and androgen focused therapies are really ineffective. What about those patients who, who don't have those those variants and those that have, say, just received um, uh, ADT monotherapy or, uh, and have not had any of these novel agents? How do you approach those patients? Right. So and this is, I would say, probably the most common scenario is particularly as, as 
ADT monotherapy is still relatively prevalently used um, uh, in, in the community. Um, you see a patient who's progressed in, with a castrate level um, with evidence of, of a metastatic progression. Um, and everything is on the table. So, so for these patients, uh, you, can, you can have some of the novel um, hormone-based agents like abiraterone or um, enzalutamide or consider uh, chemotherapy in the form of docetaxel. Um, and again, those decisions will be based off of patient preference, comorbidities, et cetera. But a lot of options are on the table in that setting. So where does vaccine therapy play in? Cell T, where, where is that in this whole algorithm? Yeah, so, so for, the, for a selected population of men who have M1 castrate-resistant, castration-resistant prostate cancer, if they have minimal symptoms related to bone metastases, um, or no symptoms, and they do not have any evidence of liver involvement or visceral metastases to the liver, they would be eligible for a vaccine therapy called Ciplucil T. Um, now, this kind of uh, a therapy involves infusions, um, can, be, can be costly. Um, and if you look at the initial trials supporting its FDA approval and, and use, um, it's tough to monitor these patients because in those trials, there really wasn't a market improvement on average in terms of PSA or radiographic findings. Now, there was an overall survival benefit on the order of a few months, but you know, just keep in mind that in terms of the magnitude of effect, it's a little hard to monitor. So, so although there, there, is, there are selected patient populations eligible for this therapy, I think um, you know, a, a kind of clear uh, discussion of, of the potential pros and, and, and risks is important with that therapy. So the, the last point that you'd made previously was we, we look at a few different factors. We, we look at um, the, the presence of, of the small cell neuroendocrine, uh, what treatments they've received in the past. But now let's let's talk a little bit about about you know genomic profiling of these tumors, germline testing. Um, how does that information, uh, and maybe even give us an example, how does that information play into how we can treat these patients um, uh, going forward? Well, right now there, there are two therapies that uh, avail, and potentially going to be three, uh, going to be available for, for men who have specific mutations or genomic findings um, in their, in their uh, tumor um, or in their germline um, you know, genetics. Uh, which, which basically, um, the one oral therapy is called Olaparib, which is focused and, and uh, for men who have specific mutations in what are called DNA repair genes. So, so if there's a ge genomic test uh, of the tumor that demonstrates particular mutations in those genes, and they have M1 CRPC, they would be eligible for those therapies, which have been demonstrated to have an overall survival benefit compared to placebo in that setting. The second category of, of uh, you know, findings that you can have on such genomic testing uh, includes microsatellite instability, which is just a, a finding that suggests this particular type or class of mutation um, in the cancer. And those uh, patients would be eligible for immunotherapy called pembrolizumab, uh, which is not really thought to be helpful in general for, pro for advanced prostate cancer patients but potentially could be utilized for that specific patient population. So certainly it sounds like the, the, the significance of some of this germline and genomic testing 
on uh, uh, genetic testing on these, these tumors is really theoretically when you get to this challenging realm of sort of personalizing what would be the most appropriate therapy based upon the mutational profile of these tumors. Is that is that an accurate statement? Yeah, and I think it's 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 although it's only available for a select group of patients, I think it's the fact that these are therapies that otherwise would not be an option is why generally guidelines now, certain guidelines support the uh, upfront germline and genomic testing of these patients um, to, to determine their candidacy, but also importantly to uh, inform you know, conversations with other family members should germline mutations be identified to potentially guide screening and treatment decisions should uh, other family members be diagnosed with, with prostate cancer or other cancers for that matter. So we've been speaking maybe the last eight to 10 minutes about castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Um, maybe just a, a broad question, just explain to our audience, what is the difference between M0 and M1 castrate-resistant prostate cancer? Right, so the M metastatic um, is, is evidence of, of spread to other areas in the body, spread of prostate cancer. Um, generally, actually almost exclusively, that's radiographic evidence of, of abnormal lesions that's often confirmed with a biopsy to say, okay, prostate cancer is spread beyond the pelvis to other areas of the body. Um, and in, in the M0 setting, there's no evidence of that. So that either means that there's only recurrence in the lymph nodes of the pelvis or, or the prostate itself, or in some cases, you can't find the recurrence anywhere and you only have the PSA that's rising and you do biopsies, you do PET scans and you just can't see anything. So that can be a difficult and frustrating scenario where you're just going off of a lab value to de define progression in that setting, but it, it can be frequent, particularly for patients who have been treated previously with prostatectomy and or radiation. So, so you sort of highlighted this as a challenging scenario. Let's, let's just take the, the, the patient who's M0. So M0, castrate-resistant prostate cancer, and you highlighted that maybe laboratory tests, PSA, help guide maybe when to initiate therapy. What, what are some of the data on, on thresholds that, that we should be looking at and, and how we should think about the, the PSA in this setting? Yeah, so we really want to get a sense when you see a patient in this scenario with say a rising PSA, but no, no evidence of, of uh, radiographic evidence of metastasis to see what that P, how that PSA is acting. And we use a doubling time generally as a, as a measure of how quickly something is rising, like how many months it takes for a PSA to double. You usually need three PSAs to make that calculation. There's available calculators online to do so. And what the, the threshold that we use generally is the a doubling time of 10 months. Um, and so if it's slow, meaning that if the, the doubling time is, um, you know, basically uh, longer than 10 months, generally the thought is, is that you could um, monitor things and just kind of let things develop. But if it's quick, if it's less than 10 months, there are three, there are three agents that are available um, for, for treating patients in that setting. Uh, apalutamide, duratolutamide, and enzalutamide are the, the three agents for, for patients in that scenario. So it seems like the, the key point is um, uh, 10 months being sort of this critical threshold doubling time, those that are theoretically uh, rising at a, a slower rate, meaning longer doubling time, 
maybe monotherapy with ADT is sufficient. Those that are going at a faster clip, as you highlighted, we should really think about incorporation of these the secondary agents uh, that you highlight. Is that right? Yeah, correct. Correct. When I say just watch, obviously, like I mentioned at the very top, ADT is still a cornerstone of what's going on here. So they're either monitored on that alone versus combined with another agent if it's moving more rapidly. Correct. So, so advanced imaging is, you know, we know it and we see it uh, more and more, you know, we have different pet-based imaging, uh, whether it's ex-human-based or, or, or PSMA. How does this play into how you, you manage these patients? Maybe do we now start picking up some maybe disease that we thought was M0, but now our imaging is helping us figure out, figure out the it's M1 earlier? How, how does that factor in? Yeah, it's, it's going to be kind of, you know, you talk about, you know, evolving landscape or new frontier as as we get these PET scans, you know, initially it was Axamen PET and, and now we have um, uh, a PSMA PET. Um, there's going to be different PSMA PET scans available, but but we're going to have more and more advanced imaging that is going to move the needle a little bit where we're going to be categorizing men who have previously had been M0, now actually M1. Um, potentially um, broadening their candidacy for different uh, therapies. We're going to see some quirks in terms of how well we're doing in treating these populations, because as a result, we're going to be lumping men who are M1 um, uh, or now M1 with like less burden of disease in a patient population that previously had more significant disease. So we're going to see that actually we're doing better, whether that's because the therapies are working better or because we're just shuffling the categories differently remains to be seen, but but I think it's going to be good because I think it will expand candidacy for patients to get certain therapies and potentially help avoid unnecessary treatment uh, in the setting of where we think a man doesn't have metastatic disease, but he might have it after all. Uh, but it's it's it, we got to do a lot of new recalibration of, of pre-existing like paradigms of, of treatment. Um, you know, the role of uh, localized therapy as we have these ongoing trials will will change and and we'll see how it goes as we get these new tests rolled out there and approved by the FDA and covered by insurance. So a few brief questions just as we finish up our time and and I know this is a big interest of yours which is really cost. And so you know we've talked a little bit and you highlighted earlier that we keep moving this stuff earlier and earlier into the disease space, right? It's not just ADT monotherapy. Now maybe ADT mono with an anti-androgen theoretically, maybe with chemotherapy. And, and so, uh, you know, there, there's a burden of treatment that we're now going to get right out of the gate and, and, and the financial impact. So, you know, from your perspective as somebody who does a lot of work in this space, how do you think about some of these cost considerations? And, and are there things that, that are nuanced within that realm that, that we should be aware of? Yeah, I think it's, 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 it vitally important to assess. And I think as physicians, we sometimes lose sight of the importance and impact that financial toxicity and other issues have on patients with both localized and advanced cancer. Um, there are ways to, to assess uh, the, the burden that a patient has in terms of financial toxicity at, during your clinic appointment. One measure is called the cost measure, much like other validated instruments that we use in prostate cancer, like the EPIC scores and other things, which is simply a questionnaire that patients have to fill out. This is an assessment of, of, of the burden of, of financial toxicity and, and issues surrounding their income and other financial resources that may play a role in, in their quality of life uh, during an already difficult time related to their advanced prostate cancer. 
And once that assessment is made, kind of ensuring a multidisciplinary approach to keeping that in context as, as in terms of what you offer for patients um, will be critical. For instance, there's, there's certain techniques. If a patient is on abiraterone, there's data to suggest that you can decrease the uh, number of doses that they require by giving them, uh, by taking a medication with a low fat meal. Um, and some, something as simple as that may slash their, their uh, uh, um, pharmaceutical related costs for therapy by half, right? So, so th these are medications that can cost, cost thousands of dollars per month. Um, some patients simply don't have that kind of money um, or, and they will tap into their life savings to, to, to get that therapy. So, so, you know, getting a sense of the baseline financial toxicity, having conversations about strategies to, to kind of abrogate the financial impact related to therapies is critical. And finally, all of these patients, you know, although they're going to have years of life ahead of them, they have advanced prostate cancer and incorporating palliative care specialists, which is not hospice, but palliative care specialists to make sure that a patient's goals of care are aligned with what you're offering them and make sure that their um, kind of other issues related to pain control, financial impact, quality of life are addressed is critical for this patient population and it's underutilized. Um, and I think it's something that as, as providers, when we take care of these patients, have to make sure that those needs are addressed. Yeah, I think your, your, your last point, well, both your points are so important because if you think about, you know, maybe, maybe at Emory, Penn State, where we were in academic medical centers, where perhaps a lot of the advanced prostate cancer care theoretically may be managed by our medical oncology colleagues, when you go out into the general urologic community, right? Advanced prostate cancer is increasingly permeated into urology practices. And, and I think, you know, recognizing that there's a financial implication, but also doing probably what we don't do well as specialists, which is getting palliative care involved, not at the end, as you alluded to, not hospice, but much earlier in the game is probably important. And I suspect under-recognized, frankly, in our field. Yeah, um, yeah. I really want to thank um, uh, the audience for their time. I want to thank Dr. Filson for a really uh, outstanding um, uh, podcast. I, I clearly very knowledgeable and very thoughtful in this space, and it, it was really a pleasure to have him. For our audience, if you have any more information, please visit auanet.org slash university. And uh, Chris, again, thank you so much. That was really enjoyable to do. I appreciate the invitation. I really had a good time. So thanks again. <laughs>